This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Almost three weeks after this shooting, has America changed? Here's a fact. These lawmakers in Washington, they're still trying to hammer out a deal, and everybody is optimistic, both Democrats and Republicans. And it's not often you hear both sides say, oh, I'm optimistic. What it does is it gives the American people, the parents of the kids who were killed in that shooting, and the kids who've been killed in other shootings, and adults killed in mass shootings, it gives them hope that the pain that they're feeling won't be felt by others. I mean, listen, I cover law enforcement. I have covered law enforcement. I've covered mass shootings. And there's no way you can stop all of them. But some of these can be prevented. Some of them, and this is a fact, this is not my opinion, some of these can be prevented with simple legislation. I'm not going to get into what that could be. But we're watching Washington right now. We're watching how the sausage is made. It's an ugly process. It really is. Because it takes, well, nowadays it seems to take forever for anything on Capitol Hill to change. Well, it feels like it takes forever. And it feels like three weeks after, almost three weeks after the shooting, They claim the lives of teachers and little kids. It's still taking Washington time to come to a consensus on common sense legislation that will prevent people who should not be armed from getting a gun. These are facts. We're going to talk about what is happening on Capitol Hill. You have testimony from the parents of some of the victims of that shooting. It is gut-wrenching to hear them talk about what it feels like to lose your child, your baby, due to senseless violence. The kind of violence that can be, and that should have been, prevented. Listen. I left my daughter at that school. And that decision will haunt me for the rest of my life. I ran barefoot with my flimsy sandals in my hand. I ran a mile to the school, my husband with me. We sat outside for a while before it became clear we wouldn't receive an answer from law enforcement on scene. San Antonio firefighter eventually gave us a ride back to the Civic Center where the district was asking all families who had not been reunited with their children to gather. 
Soon after we received the news that our daughter was among the 19 students and two teachers that died as a result of gun violence. Somewhere out there, there's a mom listening to our testimony, thinking I can't even imagine their pain, not knowing that our reality will one day be hers, unless we act now. Also on Capitol Hill this past week, a doctor. He is the only pediatrician in the city of Uvalde. So it was his job to try to treat, to try to save some of those wounded kids battered by the bullets from that semi-automatic AR-15. Kids unrecognizable. Listen to what he had to say. For me, that day started like any typical Tuesday in our pediatric clinic. Then at 12.30, business as usual stopped, and with it, my heart. A colleague from a San Antonio trauma center texted me and said, why are pediatric surgeons and anesthesiologists on call for a mass shooting in Uvalde? I raced to the hospital to find parents outside yelling children's names in desperation and sobbing as they begged for any news related to their child. Those mother's cries I will never get out of my head. As I entered the chaos of the ER, the first casualty I came across was Mia Cerrillo. She was sitting in the hallway, her face was still, still clearly in shock, but her whole body was shaking from the adrenaline coursing through it. The white Lilo and Stitch shirt that she wore was covered in blood, and her shoulder was bleeding from a shrapnel injury. When I saw Mia sitting there, I remembered having seen her parents outside. I raced outside to let them know that Mia was alive. I wasn't ready for their next urgent and desperate question. Where's Elena? Elena is Mia's eight-year-old sister, who was also at Rob at the time of the shooting. I had heard from some of the nurses that there were two dead children who had been moved to the surgical area of the hospital. As I made my way there, I prayed that I wouldn't find her. I didn't find Elena. But what I did find was something no prayer will ever relieve. Two children whose bodies had been pulverized by bullets fired at them, decapitated, whose flesh had been ripped apart, that the only clue as their identities was a blood-splattered cartoon clothes still clinging to them, clinging for life and finding none. Think about that pediatrician. Think about why he probably wanted to become a pediatrician, to help people in his community. Not treat victims, kids who were victims of a mass shooting, a senseless mass shooting. And there is also the testimony of some of those survivors. A little girl, for example, who survived that mass shooting. That's the kind of thing that you just don't shake for the rest of your life. How do you get over that? But listen to what she had to say during her testimony. There's a door between our classrooms and he went through there and shot my teacher and told my teacher tonight he shot her in the head and then he shot some of my classmates and the whiteboard when I went to the backpacks uh, he shot my friend that was next to me and I thought he was going to come back to the room so I grabbed the blood and I put it all over me so we're going to start this program. I and mean, we have a lot to talk about on this program today. And I've spent a lot of time talking about some of it. 
Let's start with the latest from Capitol Hill. Let's bring in Arthur Delaney, who is a senior reporter with the Huffington Post. He's been covering the political wrangling on Capitol Hill lawmakers. While they say they're optimistic that there's going to be some sort of breakthrough, I don't know, there are probably a lot of people in this country who say that they'll believe it when they see it. Arthur, what do you think? I think people are right to be skeptical, but the negotiators say they're working in good faith and this week, they, uh, Senator Chris Murphy, who's leading this for the Democrats, told us that they're going to uh, negotiate until July, whereas previously they, they had expected to uh, have a deal by the end of this week or call it quits. So it's, uh, it's an indication that they think that they can strike a deal, but it will certainly be a very modest deal. All right. Well, all right. So they're they're saying that they are going to keep working at this until July. Don't they have a summer vacation? And I know that they like taking their their time off. Are they going to interrupt their vacations to get something done? No, nobody's talking about missing a vacation. Uh, don't worry. <laughs> of course not. Uh, but and there's and there's an adage, uh, an axiom that the closer it gets to a midterm election, the less likely legislation, you know, complex legislation is to succeed. But I, I don't know. All bets are off right now. The, the recent mass shootings, uh, you know, people, people expected them to fade from memory um, more quickly than they have. I, I think it has remained a much more salient issue than I would have expected uh, uh, two weeks on now. Mm, all right. So, so what are the sticking points? Are they, are they talking about banning assault rifles? Are they talking about banning AR-15s, which, which are used in a lot of these mass shootings, especially lately? Are they talking about major legislation along those lines? No. Any, anything that you would think of that would be really obvious, like like banning uh, AR-15s that are that are like murder fetish objects. Well, come on now. I mean, you need an AR-15 to go hunting. I mean, it's it's important to have an AR-15 as you nestle down in the woods looking for, I don't know, an animal to take out. Don't you? Wouldn't you want an AR-15 with you? We are told this by Senator John Thune of South Dakota that you need you use them to shoot prairie dogs. Oh, in South Dakota, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, it, it sounds a little fishy, to be honest. Uh, but anyway, no, they're not going to ban. There's going to be no assault weapons ban. Huh. There's going to be no comprehensive background checks. Huh. There's going to be no federal red flag law. There's going to be really teensy tiny stuff, uh, teeny tiny stuff around around the edges of. Uh, what the gun policy debate has has been for the past few years. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on, Arthur. You, no federal red flag law because I thought I heard a lot of Republicans this past week and Democrats saying good things about red flag laws and how they're effective. That's right. They like when a state enacts a red flag law. That's that's what Republicans like. And the only thing Democrats are proposing over here in the Senate is to set up perhaps a, a grant program uh, that would create an incentive for more states to set up red flag laws or for states to set up uh, red, flag, red flag laws with uh, you know, certain parameters that, that Congress may deem more advantageous. But Republicans that I've talked to have recoiled at the idea of a federal red flag law or something that is 
overly prescriptive on states. That is interesting. All right. So as they as they push for a more modest agreement, agreement, who who do you think will win politically? Is it a win for the Republicans? Is it a win for the Democrats? Or do you have parents and teachers out there still reeling from that mass shooting who are going to be sort of underwhelmed by what Washington does or doesn't do. There are two ways of looking at this, and I find them both compelling. One way is that any progress on gun reform, even if it is the most modest, incremental thing you could imagine, is a win for Democrats. And that's what, and this is what Democrats are saying. This is what Chris Murphy's saying, who's leading the negotiations in the Senate. This is also what progressives in the House are saying. They'll take whatever they can get, because in the past, when there's been high-profile mass shooting, nothing has happened. So they say if something happens this time, that would be tremendous. That would be change. And not only, and not only would you know, the incremental policy shift be beneficial, uh, Chris Murphy says that if, if we show them that we can do this one thing, then it will open the door to more legislation in the future because Republicans will learn that it was politically uh, advantageous for them to play along. The other way of looking at this, though, is that Republicans will say, well, that's gun control. We did it. Good for us. And they will reap the political reward of that and give themselves a shield, a talking point that they can use against any further efforts. uh, And it won't help Democrats at all in the near term or the long term. So those are the, the, the two competing ways of looking at the, the politics, the political outcome of a possible deal, if we get a deal. And I, I find them both, uh, I think they both have uh, things to recommend them. I'm not sure which one is more compelling. Mm. Arthur, how long have you been covering the Hill? I've been coming over here for about 10 years. All right. So in that 10 years, how often have you covered debates over gun control or gun rights you don't have to give me an exact number just have you seen this show before yeah i I think we've seen this show before um we saw this after sandy hook we saw it with the the mansion the joe mansion pat toomey proposal to expand background checks i i think what's different this time is that the thing they are pursuing is so much more modest than even that you know even that wasn't universal background checks. That was just gun shows and internet sales. They're not even trying to expand background checks to new types of gun sales. So even more even more modest than what you've seen in the past. It's it's incredibly dinky. It really is. And and in in one sense, there Chris Murphy's just giving Republicans a pen. You know, what do you want? You want mental health, you want to put armed guards in schools. Just tell me what you want and let's see what we can do. And then you allow some modest change to the background check system in return. And I, I think that's really the only policy win uh, besides red flags. You know, it's, it's red flags and background checks. Those are the two things that Democrats are really hoping for. Uh, there was another idea out there to maybe don't let teenagers buy AR-15s from federally licensed dealers. You already can't buy a pistol if you're not 21 from a federally licensed dealer 
And, you know, everyone says they're open to that. That would make a lot of sense. It would have prevented the most recent mass shooters from buying the guns the way they did. But Chris Murphy is saying, don't count on this one being part of the final deal. So really, it's this tiny background check thing and this uh, amorphous red flag incentive that we that we don't know much about. Oh, man. I tell you, what you just said about the proposals on the table currently being dinky, which it's not really a word I've heard a lot lately. But, I, you know, that's how you feel about this legislation. It's thin. It doesn't seem like... Do you think it could stop these mass shootings? Um, you know, if, the, if these guys had been... Uh flagged by family members to uh, a local court or police department and had their guns taken away. Sure. Um, but that, that didn't happen. Uh, I, I, I think obviously if they had, if it had been illegal for an 18 year old to buy a rifle, then they would have had to find some other means. And, and given what we know about the impulsiveness of people who are younger than 25, it's, it's totally plausible that the shooting might not have happened at all. I, I think that's the most uh, compelling response to it, the, uh, the raise the age. Uh, and that passed the House. That passed the House with, with 10 Republican votes. Um, Jerry Nadler, the, the Judiciary Committee chairman, just told me that he thinks that because of the Republican support it got, in the House, it will put more pressure on Senate Republicans to accept it. You know, they say they're open to it. Um, it seems like a long shot. Uh, that, that's that's the thing that I have been most interested in, in following, even though its its chances are remote. Uh, but the the dinkier stuff, I uh, I think it would reduce gun violence at the margin, which is potentially thousands of people out of the tens of thousands who who die every year. But it's certainly not designed. To, uh, you know, it's, it's, you could not say that this is stuff that would have stopped one of these mass shootings. Uh, you know, the red flags are complicated and you've got to get people to want to participate in that. It's not something that police just up and do themselves. I don't know why it's so hard. You know, I, I've, I don't know why it's so hard to come to a consensus, whether you are someone who believes wholeheartedly in the right to bear arms or someone on the other side who believes, yeah, there's a right to bear arms, but within reason. I don't know why it's so hard for both sides to come to a consensus here. For example, on what if there was a five-day waiting period if you wanted to buy an AR-15, no matter how old you are? Only because, even though I, I know that there are millions of these guns in circulation right now, but... You know, it's, it's not like a hunting rifle, you know, so what if a, a waiting period, you know, so law enforcement can check out whoever wants to buy this kind of weapon and the person who wants to buy it, you know, there's some sort of cooling off period. Maybe you change your mind only because we've seen in a lot of these recent mass shooting cases that the weapons are purchased within days of these incidents happening. The, the thing that they're looking at for background checks is to incorporate juvenile records into the search that occurs when a gun, when a licensed gun dealer 
queries the uh, the uh, uh, National Instant Criminal Background Check system, and a, a possible result from the you know telling them to look for these additional juvenile records is that it could require uh, more time and make younger people have to wait. So they're not saying they would uh, do a waiting period or that they would disallow younger teenagers from uh, buying rifles, but it would have the effect of creating a waiting period. Uh, and, and, and I have, I believe some senators think that that would be uh, an indirect benefit. So that's, you know, it sounds kind of dinky, right? But that's, uh, that idea is, uh, Part of the myth. Hmm. Okay. Even among Republican senators, they would they would go for that. Yeah. Well, it, well, it's not like they're going for a waiting period, right? It's uh, it's incidental. It's an incidental result from just adding juvenile records. And a lot of them have have said to me and other reporters that they do like the idea of improving the background check process by scouring uh, records because you know eighteen year olds don't have a have criminal record to look for. So they would they would find other sources to check on kids who want to buy rifles. And, and I don't know if that would be for a assault rifle or just any long gun. And, and the House raised the Age Act. It's, uh, it basically says you, you want to buy almost any rifle or shotgun. You have to be 21. And I don't know if the idea in the Senate would be similar to that or, or more narrowly focused on assault rifles like you suggested. Mm, all right. So, Arthur, and this is why we have you on America Change Forever. You are pointing out little tidbits about the political wrangling on Capitol Hill that most of us have not heard uh, thus far in these negotiations. Is, are there any other little tidbits that you can give us that will give us an edge as we talk about this story in the coming days? No, I'm, I, I tipped my tidbit cup over. I gave you all my crumbs. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I appreciate you tipping your, well, your cup runneth over. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I put all the crumbs on the table f- for you. Uh, you came clean for us. Thank you very much, Arthur Delaney of the Huffington Post, senior reporter covering the inside baseball on Capitol Hill. Thank you for your time. All right, thank you. Here is my report that aired on the CBS Evening News with Nora O'Donnell. This is what easy access to guns looks like. A 12-year-old boy in Michigan robbing a store with a gun allegedly stolen from his grandfather. Police say that they are seeing more guns than ever on America's streets. 500 million firearms possibly on the streets of America right now. There are another 18 to 20 million added to circulation every single year. John DeVito is the ATF lead agent in New York City. And John Miller is the NYPD's intelligence chief. We're seeing more and more people carrying guns, using guns. It is the wild, wild west. I mean, when we look at a gun that clatters to the ground after a shooting, we're seeing extended magazines, 30-round magazines. Every morning, federal, state, and local police review their strategy to seize illegal guns. All of these were taken off the streets. All of these weapon systems were recovered off the streets of New York. In New York City, officials say gun arrests are at a 28-year high. So what is this thing? It's a mag machine pistol uh, with an integrated suppressor. This is a silencer. Uh, Essentially. We have the strongest gun laws in the country here, 
but the guns that are used in crime in New York City don't come from New York City. Guns flowing into New York come along the so-called Iron Pipeline, smuggled from states with less restrictive laws. And now there's the Plastic Pipeline. Plastic ghost gun parts ordered online and built at home. A tougher pipeline to shut down. After a recent raid in New York, police found a machine still carving out new ghost gun parts to keep up with what law enforcement believes is currently an insatiable demand. We've seen them in basements. We've seen them in closets. You really don't need much room to put these guns together. What you're seeing now is probably a boom in ghost gun ordering. The stats and You think they're stockpiling? I believe so. Officials believe that people are stockpiling ghost guns right now because in August they will require serial numbers stamped on them, making them easier to trace. I went up to New York City for a big interview after the shooting in Buffalo. Remember that one? The shooting at the Topps grocery store, allegedly by a white supremacist who remains behind bars charged with allegedly killing 10 people. So after that shooting and covering that shooting, in between what happened in Uvalde and what happened in Buffalo, I went up to New York City. A producer and I had secured an exclusive interview with the ATF's lead agent in New York City, John DeVito, and John Miller, the NYPD's Deputy Commissioner of Intelligence. You might recognize his name. He used to work for CBS News. And so after working at CBS News, he went back to law enforcement. And he's risen through the ranks. He's had many different titles. But currently, he's the commissioner of intelligence. And so we sat down and we talked about the gun issue in this country and the availability of guns and how it's contributing to crime and how the lack of prosecution, the court system sort of breaking down during COVID is contributing to the crime problem in the United States. It's all sort of woven together. The gun problem, the crime problem, it's all woven together. And they sort of lay that out in this interview. And here, here are some, some of the excerpts from this interview. Is it accurate to say that people are armed to the teeth? I don't know if they're armed to the teeth, but I know they're armed in numbers that they haven't been before. We're seeing more and more people carrying guns, using guns. We're seeing um, people shot. We're seeing more instances of shots being fired where no one's hit. Uh, we're responding to shots being fired in the night where we get there and there's no one there, but there's shell casings on the ground. Um, and I think that that has to do with the fact that 80% of the people we arrest with loaded guns in the street um, are not in jail or in prison. 4,900 gun arrests last year alone, only 17% of them were prosecuted. Only 17%? Yeah. And we are arresting people with loaded guns who were out on bail or probation or parole for their last arrest with a loaded gun. What kind of profile of these suspects, what kind of profile are you seeing on the streets? Well, say the average ATF defendant has over eight priors when we encounter them. Eight prior. Eight felony convictions. Eight times that they've encountered law enforcement and we've tried to take them off and remove them from the streets. That's the average ATF defendant in this country. All right, so why are these people being locked up? Is it the court system? What is the problem? 
So there's a combination of factors. One is during COVID, when people stopped getting together in places, courts also stopped operating largely. Uh, people were cycled through the arrest process because they could do an arraignment by video. But the rest of the process, a grand jury indictment, impaneling a jury, going to trial, that ground to a near halt, and not just in New York, in many places. So you have a system that has a backlog that has basically broken the system. And that backlog is not being cleared fast enough. So you're, you're losing cases because you're in a system that is more amenable to make deals, um, resistance to uh, putting people in jail awaiting trial when they know that trial could be years. You have a system where um, we're losing cases that are, that are falling out because of speedy trial considerations where a judge will just say, this case has gone on too long. Uh, so that's a combination of, of factors, including new laws in this state, in New York state, that say people should be released without bail, or if bail is to be set, it has to be a bail that the defendant can afford under the least restrictive conditions. So you're seeing a lot of people um, involved in gun crime who would have been in, who are out. And what we're seeing, as the New York City Police Department is, in many cases, the first thing they do when they get out is to get another gun. People don't understand the fact that this incarceration actually could save more lives because it disrupts the shooting cycle. So when we discover an individual that has a gun and then we try to prosecute them and incarcerate them, if we put them right back on the street, they're either become the shooter or the victim in the next part of the shooting cycle. So we have to decide either we're going to incarcerate our young people or we're going to pick them up in body bags. Because we're seeing that time and time again as we encounter these individuals, eight-time convicted felon with a firearm. They're carrying that firearm for a reason, either in furtherance of their criminal activities or they're scared of someone else that's coming after them. And they're either going to become a part of that shooting cycle or we're going to remove them from that equation and possibly protect them and save their lives. Mm -hmm. But what you're both outlining here, I'm, I'm wading through it, and it still doesn't explain... It still doesn't explain the availability of guns. There are more guns on the street than ever before. Is that about the court system or the availability of guns? 500 million firearms possibly on the streets of America right now. There are another 18 to 20 million added to circulation every single year. 500 million guns that have been manufactured in this country and put into open commerce. How, when those go from the uh, free market uh, marketplace to the illegal marketplace, that's our job that we deal with on a daily basis. Everyone talks about the iron pipeline. I wish it was a pipeline, because a pipeline would be easy to identify, investigate, and stop. What we have is an unknown number of garden hoses all over this country on a slow trickle that are feeding the criminal marketplace on a daily basis. That's hard to identify, let alone stop. That's what's occurring in our country day after day after day. So we have an unlimited supply of firearms feeding that marketplace and then we have a plethora of firearms already on the street. They're simply waiting dormant. If you look at the situation in New York, um, the average crime gun has been floating around the streets of New York for nine and a half years. Now what we're seeing is really interesting, which is we're seeing a significant statistical increase in the number of guns we're finding on the street at crime scenes and in the hands of criminals that have been on the street less than a year. That means there's an influx of new guns coming in. Are they guns that were purchased legally? I mean, every gun that's involved in a crime starts off with a legal purchase. In New York City, 
I would say almost 100% of guns involved in crime were not purchased legally by the person who uses them. But the guns that are used in crime in New York City don't come from New York City. In New York City, there are probably 3,000 people who are responsible for probably 80% of the crime. 700 of them are what we call the trigger pullers. These are the people who are involved in three or more shootings, one individual, some of them involved in six or seven shootings. Um, these are the people who have multiple arrests, and when you look at that record, not just me, any logical person asks the same question. What is this person doing out? And when you have 700 of those people running around shooting back and forth at each other, that is a problem that should be handleable, right? It's a, it's a graspable number, it's a finite group of individuals, and it's, um, it's a system that needs to be fully engaged in targeting those individuals to go through the criminal justice system and have a logical outcome. And we've ended up in these kind of esoteric discussions um, and a lack of urgency um, in other parts of the system where that's not happening quickly enough. There's a constant supply that we can't shut off. We can't shut that valve off of the garden hoses. But what we see is when we do more effective and intelligence-led policing and we identify, okay, out of this volume, we identify that small percentage. Of all the firearms that are recovered on a daily basis for the entire year, less than 10% of those have a connection to NIBIN, the National Integrated Ballistic Information Network. What NIBIN does is takes evidence from those crime scenes, from those shootings, and analyzes it to connect these different shootings to identify that small percentage of the criminal element in those guns that are actually being utilized to drive violent crime in these communities. That's less than 10% of the firearms that are recovered every single year. That's that small percentage. So we don't fish with a net, we fish with a spear. And again, we utilize all of our partnerships and all of our skill sets to identify that small percentage and then remove them from the equation. And that's how we're so effective at doing what we do. Going back to the number of guns, you know, 18 to 20 million that are added to our economy every year from the manufacturers in this country. What do you think is driving that? Well, I would say that the defund police movement added considerable fear on the part of every American that they had to do something to protect themselves because law enforcement was being lambasted by everyone when they were just simply doing their job. But bottom line, something fueled that rise in the number of manufactured firearms because they're manufacturing them to sell, to make a profit. So that number is ever increasing. We've got to get back to this concept that law enforcement is here to protect every single American in this country. And we're doing the best we can and we're doing a good job. We've had over a million guns floating around on the streets of New York for a long, long time. We also had the lowest gun crime of any major city in the country. And that's because people who were caught with illegal guns or using them uh, as criminals went to jail. That was a deterrent. There was a risk-reward calculus that had to happen. I'm going to take this gun out with me today. I don't know if I'm going to use it or not, but I'm going to carry it. And if something spins up, I've got it with me. But my other calculus was, but if I get stopped or I get caught, I'm going to end up in jail and then probably in prison. Once you remove the back end of that calculus, there's no reason to leave it home. That's why gun violence is up in New York City. 
Congressman Jamie Raskin represents a district in Maryland. He is also a key member of the January 6th Select Committee. Here he is talking about the investigation and what's to come in these hearings on the Soul of the Nation podcast. We're going to do what we've been asked to do by House Resolution 503, which is to define the events of January 6th, the causes behind them, and then to set forth recommendations for legislative strategies to prevent future coups and insurrections and subversion of American constitutional democracy. The hearings will tell a story that will really blow the roof off the House because it is a story of the most heinous and dastardly political offense ever organized by a president and his uh, followers and his entourage in the history of the United States. No president has ever come close to doing what happened here in terms of trying to organize an inside coup to overthrow an election and then also use a violent insurrection made up of domestic violent extremist groups, white nationalist, racist, fascist groups in order to support the coup. And that will be the story that people hear. And so, you know, think of what happened on that day in kind of three circles of sedition. There was a mass protest called for wild purposes, as the president put it, Mm -hmm. of tens of thousands of people that turned into a mob riot, which injured more than 150 officers who ended up with broken jaws, broken necks, broken shoulders, arms, lost fingers, broken legs, crushed toes, traumatic brain injuries, concussions, and post-traumatic stress syndrome. You know, that was the outside ring. And then the middle ring was the ring of the insurrection, the domestic violent extremist groups like the Proud Boys, who Donald Trump had told to stand back and stand by, the Oath Keepers, the three percenters who've been charged with seditious conspiracy, which means conspiracy to overthrow the government, the Ku Klux Klan, the Aryan Nations, white Christian nationalist groups. And then the scariest ring, that was not the scariest ring, the scariest ring was the ring of the coup. The insurrectionists were in charge of attacking our officers, smashing our windows, breaking down our doors, interrupting the peaceful transfer of power and shutting down the counting of electoral college votes. But the ring of the coup, and I know it's a strange word to use in American political parlance because we don't have a lot of experience with coups in American history. And this was not a coup directed at the president. It was a coup by the president against the vice president and against the Congress. And, you know, Donald Trump simply did not accept the results of the election. He was preparing his followers not to accept the result of the election. He was going around the country saying, the only way I can lose is if the election is stolen. And we know that that this was false because more than 60 federal and state judges all across the land, including eight judges nominated to the bench by Donald Trump, rejected every allegation of electoral fraud and corruption advanced by them. You can hear more of the interview with Congressman Jamie Raskin on the Soul of the Nation podcast on your favorite podcast apps, or you can go to faithandjustice.georgetown.edu. The House GOP did respond on Twitter, calling the hearings a desperate attempt to distract the American people. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull in District Productive. Check your local listings to see when ACF airs in your community. For now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America Change Forever. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. 
This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.